I'm Jane Velez Mitchell, New York Times bestselling author and TV journalist. And this is Unchained TV's Voice America podcast. For the next hour, you will hear the solution to most of the problems that plague our world. And it's a solution mainstream media ignores, even though it only requires us to make one simple change. Want to know what it is and transform your life? Let's get started. Hello, and I am so thrilled and honored to be speaking with an author of a book that is so compelling. I downloaded it on Audible, and I was supposed to be getting ready for this broadcast, and I found myself listening to it and losing track of time. The book is called Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, The Future of Food by Rowan Van Voorst. And she is here with us from far, far away from I'm in Los Angeles. Where are you? And thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much. And um, I am in Paraguay. This is the life of an anthropologist. So who could have known? Normally, I work in Amsterdam, but uh, I took my family here to do some new research and field work. So we're not that far apart, but uh, South America it is. Yes, and thank you for projecting as if you were on stage, because I know you're in an office center to do this where you're normally going to be out in the field, but you're a little bit quiet, so we're going to have you just project from the diaphragm. Um, Anyway, this book is fascinating, and, you know, those of us who are working, as I am, at Unchained TV, our global vegan streaming network, to create a vegan world, and indeed, uh, I produced and directed a documentary called Countdown to Year Zero, which essentially says, if the human species is to survive, we have to go plant-based as a global culture within the next decade, or we're gonna have a climate apocalypse. But how do we get there? So what you do, I think is really interesting, is you start from the premise of, we do have a vegan world, and work your way backwards. So I think the big burning question is, how do we get there? Tell us about your book uh, by Harper, which is a great uh, brand to have a book with. In fact, I had a book with Harper about a totally different subject, but it's uh, a big publishing house. So this yeah. is a really great book. I understand it's being translated into different languages and going all over the world. What is the premise of the book and How do you lay out that we're in the future already and it's meatless? Yeah, I think I wanted to write this book because I was noticing for myself that we kind of were stuck between idealist and activist who said we have to go somewhere, you know, we should change. And then people who said, well, but that's impossible. Right. And I, I do believe that if you're hopeless, if you don't have any clue about how something could change, then you're not going to act. And you often see this with people who say, well, I'm fine with no longer eating meat, but you know, what about the Chinese or what about my uncles who eat barbecue every night? You know, if they're not going to change, then how will I ever do it? And I think this misperceives the situation because if you look at the re- at the realistic state of the world at this moment, yes, there's still a lot of meat eating, but you also see that the youngsters especially are changing their consuming and eating behavior. So veganism has been called one of the fastest growing social movements of the world. 
And it's hard to see that if, if the other story is still dominant. So I thought we're only going to act if you can foresee, if you can literally visualize a world that was already different than the one that we're living in now. And so I decided to sketch a future scenario, essentially, in which we'd already passed that momentum. And then what I do in the book is I, I kind of trace back. So, for example, the first chapter is called How Farmers Saved the World. And it's based on real interviews with real people, namely farmers, um, livestock keepers, who at some point said, it's enough. I, I no longer want to be in this business. I feel that I'm no longer doing the right thing. I don't like the mass industry that this has become. I'm selling my animals or have them um, in a um, in a place where they can grow old without being, you know, abused, etc. And so I do that in every chapter. I trace back from a point in time, say ten years ahead, where the world has become mainly vegan. Um, and then I trace back how could we have gotten there. And I do that by showing how it will culturally evolve between now and 10 years later, how livestock keepers will make these very difficult decisions, um, but also how plant-based food came into being as a fashion, as something that you longed for, as something that is hip and trendy instead of kind of having this hard, oh, it's complex, I would like to be vegan, but it's complex. And these are all changes that I didn't make up. It's based on literature, it's based on interviews, it's based on my field visits. The only problem is that I'm sketching something that is now already occurring in the small, and I'm acting as if it's already occurred in the large, if that makes sense. Yes, and I like some of your quotes right at the start of the book, which I want to read. Um, and I thought this was brilliant. The difficulty lies not in the new ideas, but in escaping the old ideas. Elaborate on that, if you would. Well, I think, you know, first of all, hope has a bad image nowadays. So a lot of people connect the concept of hope to being naive, right? To being a hippie, to kind of believing in things that are simply not realistic. Well, I think that Perhaps hope is a different word for maybe. You know, to me, it says not that you're being naive. It says that you're open to the possibility that maybe something better than we know now may occur. So that is first of all. And a second is, I think I also say in the book, you can't invent new colors, can we? I mean, we only know what we know now. And it's really hard to think outside of the box. Now, all of us, you and me, uh, probably all of the listeners and viewers, we were raised in a culture where the eating of animals was completely normalized. And not just that, but also naturalized. As in, we learn stories about how natural and necessary it is for human beings to eat meat. Well, if that's been your training throughout your year, throughout your uh, growing up as a kid, then it becomes really hard to think in a different direction, to think but maybe we don't, but maybe the future will actually be plan-based. And so I think, you know, escaping from that box is the hardest because we know all the new ideas. I'm not the only one claiming that we should enter a new realm of, of eating and buying. You do it as well. This whole platform do it, does it. 
The problem is that we can't really see lively how that would ever happen. And I hope this book has a small contribution to make there. Well, that's fascinating. And I think we need to know how we get from the past to the future. You start by talking about how, hey, um, several hundred years ago, we decided it's not a good idea to burn uh, women at the stake by saying they're witches. You talk about women getting the right to vote and all sorts of things that initially might have seemed um, like wildly radical ideas. But now we look back and we go, gee, weren't they um, backward? And isn't it shocking that they didn't see that this was completely irrational behavior? Um, But it's easy to pretend that you would do the right thing in the past. It's much more difficult to do the right thing in the present. So my question to you, you're an anthropologist, you're a highly educated person. Why um, is it that um, so many intellectuals, the best and the brightest, which by the way was a sarcastic title, why is it that the best and the brightest don't seem to understand this? That the intellectuals who run the major top newspapers, uh, the top news networks, that they seem Is it just because the advertisers are the meat, dairy and pharmaceutical companies or is it because they themselves eat meat or is it because they're arrogant? Um, The best and the brightest was a sarcastic title because those were the the eggheads, the brilliant minds of our time. And they brought us the quagmire of the Vietnam War. So um, that's what the best and the brightest accomplished. Right. (laughs) So I, I find it fascinating that that was a sarcastic title. Uh, right off the bat, he's saying, look what the intelligentsia brought us. So um, if you could lean in, because we are having a hard time hearing you uh, as much as you can to the you can handle it. you got a nice face there. You can handle a close up and just. Uh, yeah. Um, if you could lean in and tell us why the smart people, the so-called smart people still don't get it at the rate they need to get it. I personally believe it's because there's different kinds of intelligence. There's, let's say, mathematical intelligence, there's emotional intelligence, and there's moral intelligence. And I think a lot of these people are lacking in moral intelligence. But you you give me your view. Well, I think a couple of things are going on at the same time. Um, first of all, like I said, we were all born and raised with the idea that we really need this, right? And that is very natural. And it is really hard to think outside of that box. And I, I wrote that chapter about the witch hunt, for example, because I wanted to show that these people did that for good reasons. So they thought, you know, they're not doing that because they really wanted to hurt only the bad people. They did it because they wanted to protect their families. They were terrified for these women, right? So this is what often happens. People do things because they think it's the right thing to do, but they're not really well informed. And you and I do it all the time as well. Now, a second thing is that food is so emotional. Right. There's so many people who say, oh, but then if I get sick, is my mom still going to be able to give me that chicken soup of hers? And we see that as very important to our culture. We see it as very important to our identity. And if that is so important, you're not really willing to let go of it. 
And then thirdly, yes, there are networks involved. There is a lot of money involved, but that has been an old problem. I mean, when slavery was there, you know, that was one big economic network and all of the proponents were earning a lot of money and a lot of comfort with that. Nevertheless, we have been able to turn it over. And fourthly, I would like to say that, again, if you can't see that change is happening, it's just really easy to hide yourself behind that one super popular but super dangerous phrase that is, well, that sounds like a lovely idea, but it's impossible. And you hear that all the time when somebody comes up with a radically new idea, people will say, oh, it sounds nice, but that's simply impossible. Hence, I do not have to act, right? And so all of these things, I think, mingle up and make it really slow, the progress. But there is progress, as you know. Yes, and there's so much talk of the tipping point. And, you know, I thought maybe the pandemic would be the tipping point because in all likelihood, the pandemic started at a retail slaughterhouse in Wuhan, China. And, you know, even if you consider the outlier conspiracy theory, which has pretty much been discredited, uh, the New York Times back in February published a story saying that the vast majority of the scientific community has concluded it started at the wet market in Wuhan, which is a retail slaughter market, just like previous a pandemic started in other wet markets. Um, but even if you think that the outlier possibility is true, it's still a place where they were abusing animals. Okay. They were, they were experimenting on bats. So either way, but in all likelihood, it started at a slaughterhouse. I thought, wow, I thought that would be it. I thought people would wake up and make, make the connection, but no, um, the scientific community has tried to respond by doing more experimentation on animals, even though uh, they were able to fast track these um, vaccines without the years of animal experimentation that they normally do. And uh, they they proved effective, according to the scientific community. So um, even even when you're it's in your face. OK, there were people marching outside uh, the major network saying eating animals causes pandemics. Not one brought a camera down to videotape it. It was as if see no evil, hear no evil. What is your reaction to that and how um, it could prevent um, society from moving forward to this world you've described? Well, I mean, we saw that with cow's disease as well, where you actually saw a little dip in consuming behavior, people got a little bit afraid of eating meat, but then really quickly afterwards, we got back on track and people just kind of forgot about it. I think, you know, it's easy to forget about it. It's easy to forget about all the interconnectedness of beings and humans and big slaughterhouses, because in the supermarket, we don't buy animals, do we? We just buy packages of I don't know what it is, like a burger, it could be a veggie burger, it could be a pig's burger, you can't really see, you can't really recognize. We're also not close to slaughterhouses. So in most places around the world, you'll have the slaughterhouse not nearby a residential area. Um, we don't want that either. Even if activists try to clamber over walls in order to make video material, they're nowadays accused of being terrorists by law. And so we don't really see it. 
then our brains, and this I explain in the book, do the rest because our brains, our brains, I compare to like overactive security guards. So what we do, if we're looking on Facebook and we see a video clip of a baby cow being taken away by his mom, with his mom, from his mom, and then the mother is making horrible sounds and trying to run after him. I think we've all seen one of or two of those clips. We tend to, first of all, click it away as soon as possible. But secondly, our brains say, oh, well, but this, this is horrible, but this must be an exception. This must be an exception because we have laws, right? It can't be that bad. And therefore, we can continue with eating that same cow on our plate that evening. Now, this is something that goes so fast inside of your head that we don't even notice it. And we have to have that because if we wouldn't have that security mechanism, you would be in total distress the whole day because it also protects us to, I don't know, whatever you see, you know, pictures of war or of suffering children. It basically says, well, that's horrible, but let's go back to normal life. It does so as long as you have decided to keep doing what you do. So as long as you think I'm, I, you know, I know it's not okay, all the animal suffering, etc. But I need this for my body, right? Then your brain will help you with that decision by basically saying this was just an exception. It needs to because otherwise the distress is even bigger because then you think you really believe I need these proteins or whatever it is that you were th taught probably in your childhood. And you also have to eat this animal that you just saw suffering. And that's just too much for a normal being to, to bear. Because that's another argument that I make. I think you often hear now that people who eat meat do so because they don't care about animals. I don't believe that. I think any, any person into this world or almost any of us is born with a love for animals. We feel deeply connected to them. I mean, look at young children. You know, I have a toddler and all of our books uh, are about what does the cow say and what does the sheep say, etc. And she's delighted, you know, she really, really loves them. And I think that's how we all started, but we're just being made numb by society and by our brains. So let me ask you, uh, how are we going to get to this future you describe in your book? And by the way, um, there is a link to purchase the book uh, right there on the intro uh, I urge you to get it because I got it on Audible, which is how I'm listening to books these days. And uh, I think it's fascinating. Before you answer that question, we've got a caller. Lindsay in Los Angeles, your question or thought for Roanne Von Vorst, the author. Hello there. Yes, I, I actually love the Kindle, you know, books on on Kindle. And that's how I do a lot of my listening as well. Uh, I'm sorry, Audible. I do Kindle as well. But um, for driving, I think it's a great way to get informed. And that takes me to my point. As vegans, we really need to be informed and almost ready. You know, you've heard of the elevator talk, that one minute speech you have ready if someone asks you what you do and you have an opportunity. Well, I think that if vegans are well informed because there's so much misinformation about veganism, about the food we eat, all the things you guys have been talking about. But as vegans, we have to have that toolkit and be able to combat this because um, for obvious reasons. That's my comment. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. And I, I agree. And I, I try to actually, you know, when I was writing this book, I tried to write it in such a way that if you have that one annoying uncle at that birthday party that always disagrees with you being vegan or whatever you try to say, you'll have a comment. I just want people to be able to give him the book because I think the book is written in a very non-defensive kind of compelling way also for flexitarians because I did not I, I wasn't a vegan when I started writing this book. And you oh. can feel that I, I wasn't. This was just for my anthropological research. I wanted to investigate the future of food, but then I learned so much that I could no longer ignore. But this book was written especially for flexitarians or for omnivores, because I wanted to show them you're not bad, you're just bad informed. All right, Paige, your question or thought for the author, Rowan Van Voorst. Hey, Paige. Hi, this is blowing my mind. Um, wow, you said so many key points here. So here's what I wanted to ask you is what are your thoughts on if somebody has lots of information, seen documentaries, and it's just still, you know, kind of hanging out in the I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it space. And they're very close with you. What are your thoughts on that? That's the most difficult part, right? It's, it's very difficult for me to understand. There is a small group of people who really are fixed up to having their meat. So the only and best tip that I have there is these people have become so defensive nowadays, especially because there is more attention for veganism. And oftentimes they have the feeling that people individualize the problem as if it's their problem only, which is, of course, you know, not true. There's there's no individual responsibility as we were all trained to become meat eaters. So what I do with these people is instead of going into the direct conversation and trying to convince them, Typically, I bring super nice vegan cookies, or if they come to dinner, if it's family, I cook something fabulous that also happens to be vegan, and I'm not mentioning it. So I'm not pushing it and saying, well, you know, this is vegan, this could be good for you. But instead, I'm just allowing them to enjoy the food. And then if they ask me, but weren't you vegan? Because I would perhaps, you know, cook with seitan. If you've tried that, it's very chewy, it's very meaty and they're kind of surprised, then yes, I might answer, oh yeah, this, you know, this is also plant-based. Just to invoke the curiosity there. Sometimes that's a more friendly way. And another tip is to do what I do in the book, to just say, listen, news predictions say, or this anthropologist um, announces based on research and based on trend research and based on future foresight research, that in 10 years from now, the vegans may be the majority or that there's already court cases on the way, which is true of children who are wanting to talk with their parents and say, hey, listen, you knew so much about climate changes and you knew so much about animal suffering. Why did you not do more? And that is, I think, a question that that is painful for all of us but especially for people who don't really want to go there. So instead of saying you're doing this wrong now, it sometimes helps to go into the future. Did you know that this is one of the biggest social movements? Did you know that in 10, 15 years from now, the majority of the children will most likely be plant-based? That is a very different conversation and sometimes that helps. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, my theory is that 
It's alternative proteins that look, taste, and feel and have the texture of meat that are going to solve this problem. Uh, the fact is, gov- forget about the government. They're creating the problem by subsidizing the meat and dairy industry. They're pretty much run by the, uh, the meat and dairy industry. The head of the USDA is a dairy trade group leader. It's bipartisan. They are both really, really bad on this subject. So I don't look to governments. Sure, I'd like governments to do the right thing, but I don't have any expectations. I do feel food technology with alternative proteins is going to make the big difference. Uh, For example, there is a company called Paleo out of Belgium, a former politician in Belgium who happens to be a highly trained uh, uh, scientist of some sort, uh, has created a bioidentical meat, not using any animal products, following the DNA sequencing. And this is an ingredient where you put it into a non-meat item and it transforms the whole thing into looking like meat, tasting like meat, smelling like meat, and having more of the texture of meat. Have you explored that aspect of this movement? Because honestly, it, it really feels like you're talking sometimes to a wall with, with a good percentage of people who you're, you're trying to convince that this is in your self-interest and they're just not hearing it. No, absolutely. I think the technique is going to make it so much more easy for people. And I described when I was a young girl and I wanted to be a vegetarian, you know, because I was a teenager and I wanted to be very special. Um, and hence I wanted to be a vegetarian. It was horrible back then because there was nothing as an alternative. Nowadays, there are supermarkets full of, so it's becoming more easy. And I think especially for families where one of the members is already semi-vegetarian, but the others are a bit lacking behind, that is going to be more easy. Also in the Netherlands, we have a huge laboratorium where they make lab meat, which is exactly the same, but they take it from the blood of one animal instead of a hundred thousands. The only problem is still the price, but that's being lowered and lowered. So yes, the technique is definitely going to help us. All right. This is a fascinating conversation. We're just getting started. We're going to take a short break on Voice America Radio, but we're going to stay live on Facebook. We are talking to Rowan Van Voorst, and her book is Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, The Future of Food. Basically, looking to the future where there is no meat consumption, but we're still eating. (laughs) All right, stay right there. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to the Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. 
Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We get Guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. Welcome back to Unchained TV on Voice America Radio. I'm Jane Velez Mitchell, and you are now re entering a portal to a transformative way of living. I'm Jane Velez Mitchell, and we are here with the author, Rowan Van Voorst, who has written an extraordinary book called Once Upon a Time, We Ate Animals, The Future of Food. Now, you're an anthropologist by trade. You're currently in Paraguay, uh, but you are from Europe. We're going to learn about your history in a second. Tell us about the time frame for this transition to a plant-based culture and what has to come together that you outline in your book for all this to happen. Yeah. Well, I think I talk in a book about 10 to 15 years from now. And the reason why I do that, some predictions go much faster. Um, but the reason why I do that is because I believe that what we need next to technique is a new culture. So we need a cultural shift in which it's no longer, I wouldn't say for in which it's not necessarily forbidden to eat meat, but it's very uncool and regarded as a bit antisocial. And we've seen this before. We've seen it happening, for example, with smoking, right? There was the sexy Marlboro guy and there was my childhood in which it was completely normal to have, I don't know, 15 smoking family members in the room with all the toddlers and the babies. And now that would be considered not super nice, right? I mean, if somebody would smoke so close to my child, I would probably ask them, could you smoke outside? And that's very normal nowadays. That type of shift takes information. People learned about lung cancer and the associations, um, but it also takes kind of an going out of fashion. And in the book, I sketch even where people still buy meat, but they do it in very sketchy or kind of super expensive shops if they really still want to do it once a year for a special occasion. But the mass of people will no longer find it okay. You have the flight shame now, you might get meat shame soon, right? Where people say, you know, I don't understand why you keep doing that. It's just not cool. That takes time, but things can move really fast if you do it smart. And I outline a couple of the things that we need, but before um, that needs to happen, I think something else is needed. And that is the topic of hope that we just discussed. I think what we need first and foremost is that people start seeing that this is actually possible because we've done crazier things in the past. And oftentimes people say, well, you're going to need the majority of people and we're never going to get the majority. But all of the social sciences show that you do not need a majority in order for a massive change to occur. 
So in reality, we have very exciting research that shows you need about 30%, that's three zero. That's a real tipping point. If that happens, the majority follows. So that's a, a 30% of pioneers. Now, when do you get to that tipping point? You go there from another tipping point, and that tipping point is called 3%. So usually what you see, if we have experiments in a ballroom, we could say, and you have one to three percent of the people in that ballroom you tell to proclaim a really radical idea but to do it with all of their passion then you see that quite soon you go over to 30 percent doesn't happen if you're with less than one to three percent but it happens consistently if you're with one to three percent passionate speakers as soon as you're at 30 percent within days or weeks, and this is a small experiment, so in real life it would be take much longer, the real tipping point is happening. And why is that the case? Because people don't like change. We find that very scary or uncomfor uncomfortable. We want to have that chicken soup, right, of our mom. But we like it even less to be behind, to be in the minority, to be the one that is old fashioned. So if I say the first thing we need is that 3% of people that really have a passion, that really have good examples that show their way, that inspire others, then suddenly the idea that there's now one to three, 2% of vegans in the whole world is no longer really tiny. We're actually pretty close to that ripple effect. So I, I always find this very hopeful. We're close, we're not there, but we're close. And the younger generation is quicker than we are. So let me ask you this question. What are the factors that get from the one to 3% to the 30%? Is there anything in your studies that say that certain things can accelerate that transition? Yeah, it really depends of the topic. So I show a really funny example of um, how kale, was at some point just a forgotten vegetable you know nobody really wanted it it was regarded as ugly not necessarily interesting um and then we had a problem because there was too much kale and so there was money invested in order to make kale trendy now i don't know if you've ever seen that very famous photo of Beyonce wearing a shirt with kale, but I do know for sure that probably amongst these listeners, there's a couple of people who have paid $6 this morning for kale green juice, right? They managed to do it. How did they do it? It's hilarious, this story. So the story goes that a couple of I don't know, creatives were paid a shitload of money to do this, and they would go to restaurants and put on on the outside of the restaurant put, would put notes saying, we have kale tonight, kale, you know, things like that. And people became interested. And then they did another smart thing. They did not make the kale too cheap, but they made it a bit, a bit expensive, not unaffordable, but a bit expensive so that it become, it becomes exclusive. You know, so I give a couple of examples that we can also use for our plant-based um, foods because and, and let me jump in because we have a caller, Nyla Farr from Hi. Dallas, Texas. Hello, Nyla Farr. Your question or thought? Hi. Um, first, thank you so much for your book. Um, it sounds very interesting. 
using the idyllic platform of a vegan world and then working backwards. Um, my question is, um, you know, as a longtime vegan activist, um, you know, obviously I'm very frustrated with the um, slow growth um, of the vegan movement. And, um, uh, you know, uh, as Jane always says, I and mean, we are fighting time, you know, the climate catastrophe is really going to take us out unless something happens soon. And, um, you know, with the, I bring up an example because, yeah, we're all hoping that we're going to reach the stage where, uh, you know, that, that tipping point, that 30%, like you say, so that um, we can actually witness um, a, a, a kinder, more just, uh, more ethical, healthier world. However, um, uh, I guess it was about 1992 when PETA first went out as an undercover investigator into these CAFOs, consecrated animal farming operation, as torture chambers, and um, we thought, wow, um, the, they got in, here's the footage. Oh my gosh, people will see this, and um, that's, that's it. I mean, who wants to partake in this? And then here we are, what, what is it, 2022? Um, just recently, again, uh, Peter's work, they went in into, uh, I guess, a, a poultry farm, and um, with their undercover inv uh, investigation, um, they were able to get uh, about 140 convictions against these um, factory farmers for stomping, beating, and, um, you know, showing sexual, or trying to uh, show sexual violence, and uh, which, which is historical. So, um, but the point is, I mean, here we are 30 years later, and uh, especially in the democratic West, especially in the younger population, many people have seen what goes on in, from, from the CAFOs to the transport to the abattoirs and um, you know <laughs> we're still dealing with the disconnect and and so can you can you address that and yeah. thank you Nyla Farin please stay on we wanted to get your number afterwards uh, Matt at Voice America Radio will get it from you thank you for that question go ahead uh, thank you please, please answer that Rowan yeah. First of all, I totally feel you. And it's really, especially if you're an activist and you're so often confrontated with all the news and all the suffering, then it's really, really hard to await finally that change, right? So I want to say a couple of things. First of all, times are changing because what you now see is something unique, namely that people for all different reasons start to finally be open to becoming vegan. And it's not just the animal activist, and it's also not just the climate activist, but it's also, for example, people who now start to learn that perhaps, especially red meat, is not as healthy as was always taught to us. And people say, hey, but the amount of antibiotics is really depressing me. I didn't know that that was the case. I no longer want to do this. So this is a new situation where you have a group of people that starts to become concerned about their health. There's a group of people that is starting to get really concerned about the climate. And then there's still the people 
really concerned about the animal suffering. Now, for that last matter, you also see that we've had so many stories for so many years about we knew what was going on with the suffering, right? Like you say, we had the videos. There were some books already about that. But the story of scientists has always been so far that it was less bad for animals to suffer than it would be for humans because animals weren't smart enough or they couldn't make a meta-analysis in their minds or and so it would just be a momentarily uh, suffering that was the story and now we've learned so much about animal sentience and we've learned so much about actually them being really intelligent and so that's also new information coming in google is now starting to say that they're translating animal thoughts right into words that humans can describe within a couple of years well i can assure you that the cows are not going to be really positive in their evaluations of their life you know so i think we have a couple of things now coming together that will decrease, uh, increase the chance of really finally having a change happening. And I also want to say something else, Nilofar, and I know that this is not, this can be also depressing, but I still find it so important. We may not be able to counter the worst of climate changes in time, right? The worst is now saying we go up to four degrees. But if we manage to even go to two degrees, I can tell you, as an anthropologist, I've lived all over the world, including in slum areas in Indonesia, where people already get flooded, and they will get flooded much more when it's four degrees than when it's two degrees. In other words, even if we don't go to the ideal stage of improvement, still every inch of improvement is an animal less suffering and a human being less drowning. And that's important work that you're doing. So please hang in there. Yes, thank you, Nyla Farr, for uh, your call and uh, your support, and uh, we appreciate you. Uh, yeah, this is what I don't understand, is people who are humanitarians. I've had people say to my face, well, I care more about people than I do about animals, you know, with a condescension. But actually, the cause of human world hunger is meat consumption because it is the most inefficient food source. So we're 8 billion humans killing 80 billion animals who are eating a huge percentage of the food that is grown. More than 80% of all soy is fed to farmed animals. So when you say to people, hey, you care about world hunger, then stop eating this inefficient food source that's using up all the food it takes, whatever. However you want to calculate it, 5, 8, 25 pounds of grain to make one pound of steak, depending if you just feed the grain directly to the people, you can feed them. We could live in a world of natural abundance where everybody has enough to eat. Shut down. I mean, you have hunger organizations feeding meat to people. You have humanitarian groups shipping animals to people who are already food and economically insecure, which is a crazy idea. If you're suffering economically, don't give them another mouth to feed. It doesn't make even basic mathematical sense. And yet tons of people are doing this. How do we get these people who are cousins of the intelligentsia, sometimes overlapping, to see the error of their ways? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, at the moment, I'm in Paraguay to do field work, and, and this is one of the countries where you see massive deforestation in order to have more cows. Um, um, so we have a lot of degraded land here, and it's a massive problem directly related to the animal industry, right, and to the meat-eating industry. So I'm, I'm very close to that feeling of this does not make sense. There's again a lot of misinformation there. So normally I will I live in Europe with my family. There, if you would buy soy yogurt or soy milk or whatnot in the supermarket, it all comes from European soy. Still, people think that deforestation is linked to soy produce, which is not the case. Like the deforestation that we see here or in Indonesia. Um, the massive deforestation, that is deforestation done to have cows on the land or to create soy that is being given to cows so they can eat and pigs, right? It's not for human produce. The human produce, the plant-based alternatives are not bad for the environment in any way close to what we're now seeing with animal produce. There's a beautiful study that I refer to in my book done by Oxford University that also gives the descriptions because another misinformation is that people will say, oh, but what about avocados? They're bad for the environment as well. And the Oxford study shows that it really doesn't matter. I mean, if you take the most efficient type of meat, like protein efficient meat, uh, that would be chicken, for example, poultry. And you compare that to the, the worst, like the avocado, the thing that is taking up more space or more, um, you know, then still the avocado wins. So if the majority would go plant-based, then we would do a lot of good for the environment. And that is just a, a matter of spreading the word, um, showing okay, the I, deep. I want to, I have to jump in and not to, not to interrupt, yeah. but. Um, the United Nations held COP26. They served ham sandwiches. Unchained yeah. TV actually had a um, reporter there. We were the only news organization to go into the cafeteria and show that they were serving ham sandwiches on videotape. However, the Washington Post did an article because the UN did provide uh, a, a carbon price tag on every meal. And even the Washington Post, which is in no way, shape or form vegan friendly, said, well, if the carbon footprint and the carbon price tag of the ham sandwich is so much higher than the carbon price tag of the few vegan options that they had there, why did you even serve it? And, you know, there are those who say that the United Nations itself is um, under the thumb or in collaboration with the meat and dairy industry. And so even they, when the head of the United Nations says, wake up world, we're in a crisis, a catastrophe. He did, he did that recently. He said, you know, like the sky's falling. And even he has not acknowledged animal agriculture's role in the climate crisis. Well, I mean, I, I remember myself, I think 10 years ago, being on a climate conference in Davos in Switzerland and kind of being sad, but also laughing about the weird fact that everybody flew there to talk about the climate change and then there was no vegan lunch available uh, and nobody seemed to see the paradox there but things are also changing like i just got the news that in the netherlands where i live we now have the first hospital that will only serve vegan food you know that is happening so uh yeah so that's becoming the norm have you heard about the plant-based treaty 
Los Angeles tomorrow uh, is scheduled to vote on endorsing the plant-based treaty, which essentially says uh, relinquish, redirect, and renew. Relinquish animal agriculture, redirect funds to plant-based, and then renew the devastated natural world by reforesting. That's exciting. Let's see if people are already ready for it or whether we have to wait, but hopefully they will be brave enough. Yes. Um, yes. So again, your book, which is so incredible, and I'm listening to it on Audible, it gives me hope. Once upon a time, we had animals, the future of food uh, by you, who are you are an anthropologist. So you're taking a very interesting approach to all this, looking at how people change. Um, and it's very hard to measure progress in real time. Uh We see, however, globally meat consumption rising. How do you mesh that with your theory that we're on the road toward a plant-based society? Well, both of the things are rising. So plant-based foods are rising, plant-based drinks are rising, like plant-based milk, etc. And at the same time, you also see almost a counter response where people start producing and eating more meat. So it seems to have a thing to do with one another, where people, especially the people in transformation that still find it very scary or very hard, um, they're still misinformed. They still think you need a lot of proteins for the body in order to stay healthy. They don't know that most of the people in this world, not even just in the West, have too much proteins in their bodies naturally, not too little. So we still have this myth that as an athlete, as a sports guy, you need a lot of proteins. So what you see now often is that people say, hey, I find it a really good cause. I'm going to do oat milk in my coffee. And then they say, oh, but then I have too little protein. So I'm also going to buy extra chicken, right? So that doesn't make sense. So we have to inform those people. But I think rather than us doing it, it will be the good example. So in my book, I have a chapter called Sexy as Fuck, if I say, if I may say that, AF, let's call it AF. Yeah. where you see how Instagram influencers and top athletes and very attractive chefs are making it really cool to be vegan. And that's completely new. When you were young, Jane, was it cool to be vegan or were you just a bit like weird? I've been attacked so many times and people laughed in my face even as recently as, um, you know, a a couple of years ago, or it still happens, you know, with the eye rolls and the... mm, Now, suddenly you see top athletes who publicly... But things are changing. And you know what really changed was, I think, the Impossible Foods and the Beyond Meat Burgers. Um, But um, there's still, like, I look around even where I live and I see people, they will sample it. But then when they're going to have that party, they fall back on their own own habits. When they're going to have that barbecue, they fall back on that that old behavior pattern. So it's it's very frustrating to see progress in real time because you can't really tell it's we want the time lapse photo, but we're not getting it right. But we have to focus on the positive news that comes out, like the hospital, like uh, the fact that European wildlife that we thought was going to be extinct. The Guardian just wrote a piece that many of the sorts now came back because things are changing for the better. You know, there's that news as well, but it's just you have to search a little bit for it. I show 
it on my uh, Instagram stories one day a week. I show positive news to give people hope, but also it's right that it's changing slowly. People really have to get used to this new culture uh, and it takes time, but it's accelerating now. I want to jump in. We only have a couple of minutes. Tell us your backstory, how you got here. Well, I mean, I, I'm an anthropologist and a future foresighter. I'm the Dutch president of the Future Society. Uh, so I have two backgrounds. I did a PhD in the one and then was professionally trained in the other. And every five years, I just choose a topic that I want to research. I do the future of public health at the moment. I do the future of love and romance. And I did the future of food. I wasn't a vegan, but then I learned so much that it kind of felt like there was no turning back. And um, I, I started writing a book that was about this cultural change. But, but also, you, are, you are a vegan now. I am a vegan now. And I must say, and this gives hope, I'm in Paraguay, which is the biggest eating meat-eating country in the world, and I get my plant-based foods here. There is soy, there is plant-based milk, even in the coffee shops, it's not really a problem. And my book comes out in Spanish and Portuguese and Japanese nowadays. So there's a market, even in the countries where we thought there's never going to be a market there. Wow. You are giving me hope. I, I love the fact that you're not uh, a vegan who's trying to make a point. You're a futurist who chose this subject and came to the conclusion that the future of food is vegan. And I hope everybody that reads the book comes to the same conclusion because I think it's the only true conclusion. Have you thought about doing a documentary on this from a future of food perspective as opposed to like an animal rights perspective? Not yet. Not yet. My, my real talent is just writing and thinking. I'm such a nerd. Oh, I love it. Well, we need more nerds in our in our gang. So thank you so much. You are an inspiration. I can't wait to finish your book. I'm listening to it on Audible and you can get it on the link that we provide in the intro to this video. We're also going to write a story about it on UnchainedTV.com and profile your work. So I just want to say thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I know you're a very busy person. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what you tackle next time. <laughs> and, Ed, I would say that the healthcare industry is very tied to the food industry because uh, the pharmaceutical industry needs people to get sick in order to sell them all those pills. So yeah. there is a connection there. Plenty of work for me to do still. All right. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate it, Rowan. Really great talking to you. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.